You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Lucinda Lonick. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, October 6th, 2022. Later in the program, we have a brief update on Monroe County's proposal to build a new jail. This comes from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Voices in the Street, a public opinion feature on the nature of drunk driving and how it can be prevented. But first, your local headlines. The Monroe County Commissioners heard from Health Department Director Lori Kelly at their meeting on September 28th. Kelly updated the board on COVID-19 rates, available testing in the community, and vaccines given. Uh, Just a few updates. Monroe County is in a green or low CDC community level. A total of 70 counties across the state are within the green community level. The Health Department does have free COVID-19 home tests available. Members of the public may walk in Monday through Friday from 8 to 4 p.m. to request these tests to take home. The public health clinic has COVID-19 vaccines available. Appointments can be made by calling 812-353-3244. IU Health Positive Link has administered 339 first doses and 137 second doses as of September 27th of the Janaeus vaccine. They have administered all of the Monroe County Public Health Clinic doses that were getting ready to expire. Next, the commissioners heard from Parks and Recreation Director Kelly Whitmer. Whitmer asked the commissioners to approve a contract with Snedeker Construction to make improvements on the Karst Farm Dog Park. This project has been in the works for over a decade. The day we opened the Karst Dog Park, we've had this problem. What this will alleviate is we have standing water. So if you're using a wheelchair or a walker or some other assisted device, you would not be able to use any of the water features, the drinking fountain area, the water is over your ankle. Plus, we are concerned about waterborne diseases for dogs, and this will eliminate that worry also. We're pulling from four different funds, as you see, um, to put this together. Commissioner Julie Thomas asked if this project would be a short-term solution or a long-term solution. Well, and it's been engineered so we can make sure the drainage works and it will fix it for decades. The commissioners unanimously approved the contract to improve the dog park. The commissioners also heard a request from Chief Deputy Tricia Martin, who asked the commissioners to approve an agreement with Midwest Resort to help with mail ballot pickup and metering for the 2022 general election. The board approved the request. The next Monroe County Commissioners meeting will be held on October 5th. At the Bloomington Utility Service Board meeting on September 26, Assistant Director of Utilities James Hall asked the board to approve the 2022 Residential Stormwater Grant recipients. Um, Tonight I'm bringing forward um, 
the residents that we had selected through our um, external committee. Um, there's 10 of those on there and you'll have the address. I don't want to read them off there. Um, we had 19 applications for a total of $111,555.55. Um, again, we had um, allocated $100,000 for this and we used $30,000 for engineering services from Smith Design Group to help us kind of weed through some of them. Um, and then after that, um, we've awarded $66,855.58. I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Board member Megan Parmenter said that she was able to be a part of the Stormwater Grant Commission and appreciated the work they did. I appreciate all the work that the committee did. Um, I was able to start out uh, at the first half of it, and then school started when, when they were finishing and wasn't able to finish with the committee. But um, it's a wealth of knowledge that really comes from many different areas um, that really were thoughtful about their questions and, and who would be best served with this grant money. And I think that these are great recipients. It's interesting to look at them on a map and see how they flow through our town, um, down like Jackson Creek and, and different areas. And so um, I think this is a great list and I'm excited for these residents to receive their stormwater grants. Board member Jim Sherman shared that he noticed many of the applications were from the southeast quadrant of the city and that three applications were located on High Street. He asked if there was anything about the area that could have caused that trend. Hall responded. Is there anything about the southeast quadrant or High Street specifically that... Um there's greater need there. There are more problems the, there. The, the Jackson Creek, um, yeah, drainage basin kind of yeah. has a, a bigger need, and so we've kind of and we've got applications from there in that whole area. So yeah, that that was one of the things that we that we noticed with the applications as well. Sherman asked if they would need to increase the grant funding for next year to ensure that one hundred thousand dollars would go to the projects rather than decreasing the funding to pay for the consulting fees. Thousand that was um, given to the consultant, I guess you call it. Is that consistent with past years? Because um, we're cutting the hundred thousand to yeah. sixty-six thousand. Yeah, uh, this was the first year that we have done that to use the thirty thousand to use an engineering firm to kind of study it. Um, so we've been. In, discussing it internally if it would be beneficial next year or not. Like I said, the one project, it, it did help. And there were other projects where um, we're not super familiar with the site. So when they say they needed eight inch pipe, we're kind of relying on the contractor to be sizing it correctly. Well, they came back and said, this actually needs a 12 inch pipe. And so there were, there were some cases in there where they really helped us with the, the size of the pipe and some other instances. So, so we, we might want to increase the grant funding for next year or or not because again if you you know my my expectation was that a hundred thousand was going to go to you know the projects the projects yeah so, yeah um i don't know if we need to um increase the funding amount we we're looking at it and we're looking at the program and how do we serve maybe regions better of the city instead of individual properties and how how can we use that hundred thousand dollars to do that okay. so so we're we're looking at at the program overall and how does it benefit areas instead of just individual homes yeah well i hope we keep the project I, I hope we keep the funding going 
yeah. in the future. Board President Jeff Ehrman asked if they had received any application from residents who were in lower income areas. Hall said they were working on eliminating the barriers that Bloomington may face in order to make the grant accessible to all Bloomington residents. But I know we still struggled with that. Even petitioning homeowners like, hey, you would be good, you know, this is material, getting some of those back. Because I know that we had done outreach in some of those areas and asked people to apply. And Where you had identified problems correct. and encouraged them to we apply. We thought, yeah, they would be good candidates and still had. And that's what we were hoping with the the having the engineer on board, right, was like, you don't have to have a great application, just get something submitted and we know it's kind of a problem area and then the, the engineer will help kind of walk it through, you know, because it, it's, it's time consuming for these homeowners too to meet with contractors and it's a lot, it's a big burden for them too. So we're trying to, we were trying to figure out how to lessen that burden to get more uh, applicants. Yeah, if we could continue working on that process yeah. and, and finding a way to, to to make it really easy for them and, and to utilize that consultant and those yeah. funds to, to help them get yeah. in an application, that'd be great. And, and yeah, and I think that's what we're talking about with the regional, regional areas that it may be easier to do that. The board unanimously approved the stormwater grants for recipients. The next Bloomington Utility Service Board meeting will be held on October 10th. At the Bloomington Board of Public Works meeting on September 27th, City Legal Chris Wheeler shared an appeal of a violation located at 530 South Washington Street. Wheeler said that the property regularly has trash around that has become a public safety issue and plant overgrowth that has become a public nuisance. Bloomington Municipal Code makes it unlawful for any person to throw, place, or scatter any garbage, recyclable materials, or yard waste over or upon any premises, street, or alley, either public or private. Rubbish, by definition in the code, includes wood, glass, bedding, crockery, construction debris, and then a nice catch-all phrase of similar materials. Neighborhood Compliance Officer Rob Council gave the board some background on the violation. Hi, I'm Rob Council, Hand Department. Um, I can give you a brief synopsis of how this all started. Um, August 1st, I met in person with Mr. Davis um, to just to chat in person and see how things were going, see what we could do to maybe get some movement going on the property. Um, I had gotten complaints verbal from different property owners on either side of him about the accumulation of garbage. On the 4th of August, three days later, I went back to Joe's property in person with Liz from Planning, Mike from Hand, and Cody from HUD to see if we could offer any grants, funds, or help to tackle this massive project on his hands. Uh, a week went by, no movement, no nothing had been done on the property, so I issued the first warning on the 11th. Went back to check a week later and issued the second written warning and still no movement. And all this time I've been trying to talk to him, see what the city can do to help move this along. Um, on the 7th of September, after weeks of nothing happening, I issued my first written ticket with a fine. And here we are. Board member Elizabeth Karen asked what had prompted the housing and neighborhood development staff to inspect the property. Council responded. In my neighborhood compliance job, I run into a lot of neighbors. Um, this one was brought up by a neighbor on the same block. Okay. 
uh, when I went to issue them a grass ticket, they said, well, why are you giving me this grass ticket when you guys aren't doing anything about this? And he pointed towards Mr. Davis's property. Board President Kayla Cox Deckard said that the appellants informed the board they had removed some of the noxious plants and asked council if he had seen any proof of that. There has been a little bit of progress as far as the removal of the noxious plants. Um, yesterday, I did still spot Japanese knotweed and poison ivy on the property, and there are photographs of that included as well. The appellant Joseph Davis spoke explaining how he had acted throughout the process of receiving a violation notice. I would like to take issue with several statements uh, that were made by Rob Council. Uh, first off, uh, on August 1st, yes, it's true, he did come out and visit with me, and then four days later, he did bring out uh, uh, several other workers from hand. And from the get-go, I spoke with every one of them, and I said, hey, this is a big project. This is a process. I wish to work with you. I wish to have accountability partners, but I need you to direct me. You can't make nebulous statements without specifically directing me. So Rob said, okay, all right, I tell you what, first thing you need to do is get rid of this poison ivy and some of the knotweed and address the things in front of your house. And we'll start there. So I did so. He ended up coming back um, uh, and uh, I saw him pull up uh, and uh, I ran up to him and I was like, Rob, you got to tell me what Japanese knotweed is. Well, he didn't proceed to tell me what Japanese knotweed was, but he did proceed to tell me how next I needed to focus on my front porch. So then for the next couple of weeks, I focused on clearing things off the front porch and processing them, and in general, trying to address the curb appeal of my property from the front, uh, as that was what I understood that are... Uh, uh, where I should be directing my efforts. And Rob did say that I'm going to come back in one week and follow up with you and give you feedback because I expressly asked for feedback through this process so that I could make sure that I was on track. Rob never showed up. And even after I left uh, a neat, uh, phone message with him, either on that following uh, day, Friday, or on Monday at the beginning of the week. It's like, hey, dude, where were you? I worked so hard. I wanted to show off what I've accomplished, and you never showed up. And then several days later, I received these fines. Davis asked the board to appeal the violation so he wouldn't have to pay a fine rather than pay to fix the property. But if I have to spend money on fines which could be going toward the construction of a garage and back, which will house many of these items, that's only injuring my ability to succeed. Can you please understand this? Maybe I'm unconventional. Yes, that's true. But I still have a right to live a peaceful existence and improve that as I am able. So... Um, Please grant me another opportunity to demonstrate my progress. That's all I wish. From the get-go, this is a process, and I am a willing, compliant partner in this. But I want a partner in exchange. Board member Jennifer Lloyd 
asked counsel if the hand staff could provide the appellant with a thorough list of what needs to be done on this property. He said that they don't normally do that, but it can be done. The board voted unanimously to deny the appeal and uphold the notice of violation. The next meeting will be held on October 11th. Up next, we have a brief update on Monroe County's proposal to build a new jail. This comes from the producers of KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. Tune in to WFHB tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. to hear updates regarding prison issues on KiteLine. In 2007, Monroe County, Indiana, KiteLine's home, proposed building a new jail. They claimed that the old one was decrepit and under capacity. In the end, the new jail was not built thanks to public opposition and sky-high cost projections. Now, 15 years later, the county has proposed a new jail again. The old one is decrepit and under capacity, claim proponents. Like last time, those in favor of the new jail are presenting it as social work, promising to build in mental health and addiction services, nonprofit services, and gardens. Carceral humanism is on full display in what will actually simply be a widening of the carceral net. Those in favor of the new jail cite two kinds of problems with the existing one, capacity and conditions. The capacity claim is a red herring, as bookings in the jail actually decreased between 2003 and 2018, according to a study by RJS Justice Services, commissioned by the county. As for conditions, they are bad at the jail, but the county has failed to price a renovation instead of a brand new facility and to consider how conditions might improve with a smaller population. A study authored by an IU criminal justice professor and funded by Arnold Ventures identified a great range of changes the city and county could implement that would jail fewer people, particularly on probation violations. Not only has local government failed to consider this 2021 study, but its own studies are all based on data collected in 2018 or prior. Yet during COVID, the jail population fell from its regular high of 280 to 185. Did crime surge? City residents don't think so, but the town has not published these statistics, whether because they don't exist or are simply late is unclear. The proposed site for the new jail is an 80-plus acre parcel of land in the southern part of the city, far from public transportation and including several wetlands. The county has signed a contract to purchase this property for $10,022,000, all before any kind of construction or even design work begins. Another $50 to $60 million would be dedicated to the first phase of design and building, and then another unspecified amount beyond that to pay for the additional buildings and facilities that the county wants to place at the site. The jail would be funded with bans, bond anticipation notes, short-term debt securities issued by municipal or state governments to fund projects, and edit the economic development income tax, even though jails are the farthest thing from economic development. The city and county have not yet consulted the public on whether it wants to spend its tax dollars on this behemoth. Luckily, the contract gives the county several opportunities to get out of the deal before the closing date in January, based on feasibility, environmental harm, and financing. Also, as in 2007, 
local residents are massing to organize against new jail construction. A group calling itself Care Not Cages has begun to educate itself about the process and possible activist response. If you'd like to get involved in this decarceral effort, you can come to their weekly meetings Thursday at 6 p.m. at the Overlook Community Center, 611 West 12th Street, in the Maple Heights neighborhood of Bloomington. On today's episode of Voices in the Street, Youth Radio took to the streets of Bloomington to discuss the death of the 20-year-old IU student Nathaniel Stratton, a victim of drunk driving. In the hopes of finding some answers as to what can be done to prevent more accidents like this in the future. This is Voices in the Street, WFHB's monthly public opinion feature, providing the members of our community the opportunity to have their voices heard. In the early hours of September 19, 2022, 20-year-old IU student Nathaniel Stratton was hit and killed by a drunk driver. The loss of a son, brother, friend, and peer sent shockwaves through the community of IU and Bloomington alike. In the wake of this tragedy, Youth Radio took to the streets of Bloomington asking, what was your initial reaction to hearing about this tragedy? I was first initially shocked. I mean, sadness that it could have been avoided. I was kind of shocked to hear about it. I mean, I know that it happens, but you know, you just never like hear about it. I feel like we see a whole lot of that. Before anything came out, and I know it's terrible, but I was like, there was another scooter accident is kind of how I looked at it before I learned the details. So once I learned the details of everything, though, I was like, well, I felt bad for that being my initial reaction. Drinking is really normalized on college campuses, like drinking and driving and being like basically an alcoholic. So when you add drunk drivers into the mix, it's like it's bound to happen. I thought it was awful. I always get really upset when I hear an IU student died just because I can see myself in their shoes so much easier, I think. Yeah, I was just really sad for his family. How does the culture of partying around Bloomington and IU contribute to the issue? I do think drunk driving is not taken seriously enough by people at IU. We just do have a culture of partying and heavy drinking. I wouldn't say it's less looked down upon. I would just say it's probably more common if more people are going out late and drinking and want to get home. I think it definitely, unfortunately, makes it easier to be in that situation. But in my opinion, it comes down to the person and you're responsible for your own actions. So if you are planning to drink, then it's your responsibility to not go behind the wheel. Our campus is pretty walkable, but people don't like to do that and they want to drive. And then Ubers are expensive. I just think people try and reason with themselves as to why they think they can drive even when they shouldn't at all when they've been drinking. I think that there's a lot of uh, endorsement to that sort of activity. People are encouraged to seek out that sort of indulgence, you know. It's part of the culture. There's less of a stigma maybe. I feel like people are just more prone to making bad decisions since there's more of the people compared to like a smaller school. 
Yeah, drinking is really normalized. Like my first year at IU, all I wanted to do was drink. And when I wasn't drinking every weekend, I felt like I wasn't having fun. And basically like it's really hard if you're sober to feel like integrated into the community here. IU does a good job at using like IU Night Ride and trying to make sure that all their students are safe. But I feel like they could do better at like making sure students know that that is an available resource. Side note. IU Ride Late Night and Bloomington Transit Late Night are programs that offer students and residents of Bloomington, respectively, discounts on Uber, Lyft, and IU Ride after public transportation hours. What could be done better to implement programs like IU Ride Late Night and Bloomington Transit Late Night? Just a lot more advertising needs to be done about it because I think I've heard about it maybe once and I never really got like a lot of information about it. They could start with like Maybe an email. Maybe I've gotten an email. I just haven't read it. I don't know. Yeah, I use both of those because I don't drive. Like, they don't really talk about them much. The IU late night app is really bad. It's really slow. And sometimes the drivers don't even, like, meet you at the right place. And there's not that many drivers anymore. I think deconnecting it from the university, especially when kids are drinking underage, they don't want to hop in an IU paid for a ride because they just get nervous that they could get in trouble. Because I know when I was an underclassman, that was never like something that sounded appealing to me to get, is to get into one of those. But I mean, they're fine and they're cheaper. So I think they told us about that like freshman year. IU Late Night is through this app called Translock, um, and you can't schedule rides ahead, and it's not really marketed well. Like your freshman year, it is, but not like when you come here later. Especially if you're a transfer student, like no one knows about that. Maybe also just like having teachers tell students like before you know class is over on Friday or whatever like get home safe by the way there's this program that you can use to keep yourself safe I feel like that would be the most efficient way I think that they could probably be advertised more you know I hadn't heard about that but that seems like a pretty good system to have I feel like if they advertised it more as like a safe alternative to Uber but didn't really like call it IU late night rides or IU night ride whatever it is. Making people more aware or integrating IU late night with like Uber or Lyft more of like the major apps instead of Translock. In general what do you think could be done to prevent drunk driving? I think that the IU's program is pretty helpful if it would be more widely known. Make sure you have a designated driver. Self-monitoring and everything and obviously not all the time that'll work. If you are like maybe hosting a party or something like that, make it a rule that someone has to Uber if you're drinking or someone has to leave their keys or something like that. So people definitely need to hold their friends accountable. If they're trying to drive drunk, say no, but honestly that could be kind of hard depending on the situation. If you see your friend drunk and they're trying to get in a car, don't let them. It would be hard to like eliminate drunk driving, which is terrible, but it's just a thing. College kids are gonna make their own decisions and sometimes it's just the wrong one. Also, I can't really speak, like whenever I'm, you know, drunk at night, I don't try to drive, I just call an Uber immediately because money isn't a problem for me. I mean, I'd rather be safe than have an extra 10, 20 bucks in my pocket. Maybe a more affordable option. I wish public transportation was better in America as a whole, you know. I think our infrastructure is not really set up for that, but the more buses we have running, the better it is. Public awareness, education. More education about drinking and driving. I think people see a lot of statistics about drunk driving and they don't really humanize those statistics. So I think continuing to get like 
actual stories about things that have happened, even if they don't know those people directly, is more effective than throwing statistics in students' faces. All interviews conducted by Marty Abetti and Wilder Mouton. Produced and edited by Wilder Mouton and Miles Petro. This has been Voices in the Street, WFHB's monthly public opinion feature of candid, local commentary about our world today. Voices in the Street is a volunteer-powered joint production of our news department and youth radio program here on WFHB, 91.3-98.1 FM, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Youth Radio. KiteLine is produced by Mia Beach. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnick. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your shows. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people, Coming up next on WFHB.